0: You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sparking Wholeness. This is Erin Carey, and I am so excited to introduce you guys to Dr. Ellen Vora. She is a holistic psychiatrist acupuncturist and yoga teacher. She takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalances at the root. Dr. Vora received her BA from Yale university and her MD from Columbia university. And she is board certified in psychiatry and integrative holistic medicine. She is the author of the anatomy of anxiety, which comes out very soon, or by the time this show airs might already be out. So you got to rush and get it. And we're going to talk about that. So Dr. Vora, thank you so much for being on the show. Erin, thank you so much for having me here. This is going to be fun. So, you know, I really want to get started. I want to know, have you always wanted to be a psychiatrist? Like what led you to psychiatry to begin with?
1: Yeah, no, I had no idea that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, I think it... Looking back is obvious. <laughs> I was just going through some old things from my dad's attic, and there's a a book I wrote freshman year in high school called um, "Our Autobiology." That's like an it was you were supposed to write an autobiography. That was the assignment, and I made it all about the human brain. So you know there were signs, but basically um, I was a English major as an undergraduate, and I liked the gray areas of the human experience. And then you go to med school and you really lose connection with that. And suddenly you're learning about like nephrology and it gets pretty cut and dry. And I found my way back to psychiatry as the specialty where I could still go back to kind of grappling with these challenges of the human condition while helping people. So I'm glad I found my way back.
0: I love that. That's great. Well, I was an English major as well, so we could talk about literature, but that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> um, I want to know, uh, what what drew you to functional medicine? What caused you to go that direction? Because that's a different way of looking at things as well.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, I'll date myself a little bit with this, but in the 90s, if you were into (laughs) the Dave Matthews band, there was this (laughs) album, Remember Two Things, that had an album cover, and it was this weird kind of geometric design, and if you stared at it in a certain way, you saw an image pop out of a person holding up a peace sign with their fingers. And, um, it, I think it was called a magic eye poster <laughs> and it's like, you could stare at it and stare at it and see nothing. And then you see it. And then once you've seen it, you cannot unsee it. And that is exactly how I feel about functional medicine. It's like, you can go through medical training and you can be like, yeah, okay. Like if you have heartburn, you should take an antacid and that's how you understand health. And then once you see it with functional medicine, the idea that much of what we're doing in conventional medicine is symptom suppression. We're just band-aiding symptoms. We're not addressing the true root cause of the problem. And in functional medicine, it's root cause resolution. You're saying, well, why does somebody have heartburn? What's contributing to this? What's causing it? Let's address the why and not just band-aid the symptoms at the very surface. So that's the magic eye poster for me about functional medicine, root cause resolution rather than symptom suppression. And once I saw that and I kind of arrived at that, um, like once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And I got there through my own health struggles, really, and just feeling like everywhere I turned, conventional docs were suggesting a Band-Aid, and I kind of suspected, like, yeah, like, even though going on the birth control pill might give me back my period, what happens if one day I need to go off the birth control pill? What if I want to have a baby? Like, there must be something going on here that's not right. Can we address that? But everywhere i turned i would just get doctors with the same party line of like well you know with pcos we don't know what causes it but you know go back on the pill get your period and so i had to kind of be confronted over and over with the fact that we didn't have fundamental
0: solutions
1: in conventional medicine and then that brought me to functional medicine
0: wow that's there's so much there that i could unpack i mean the the magic eye poster i've never thought of it that way, but that is, that's exactly what functional medicine is. It's like, once you've opened the door and once you look at things from a, but why perspective, it changes everything. And I, I, I wonder if we kind of have lost the art of questioning in recent years, haven't we? I mean, I, what's, what's dangerous about just asking, but why, but why do I have bipolar disorder? Why do I have depression? Why do I have anxiety? But why? Why?
1: Yeah. It's such a problem. It's interesting because, you know, when I was going through my medical training, I learned how to talk the talk and kind of act the role of the physician. And there's a real way of kind of shutting down inquiry and just being like, well, there's no evidence for that. Or, you know, I see the way doctors think. And it's like, if someone said to them, you know, I have hypothyroidism, but my symptoms are looking more like the symptoms of hyperthyroidism it like something in the doctor brain malfunctions. We're just like, that's not what the textbook said. So no. Mm -hmm. And we just are not comfortable with maybe or we're not really that comfortable when our training failed to prepare us for the complexities of how these things show up in real people. And I think that it's always about why. And, And I remember being on my surgery rotation, standing in an OR when we were doing an appendectomy or removing somebody's appendix. And I was thinking to myself like, I wonder why people get appendicitis. (laughs) And I was like, this surgeon who's been doing nothing but this surgery and gallbladder removals for the last 15 years of his life has probably given this some thought. So I was like, why do you think people get appendicitis? And he like shot me this look. And he's like, we don't ask why. We just cut. (laughs) And to me, that's where like, as a Jewish New Yorker, I was like, this is not my line of work. It's like, all I do is ask why that's all I'm interested Mm -hmm. in. And functional medicine is really good at the maybe at at sort of validating a person's subjective experience, rather than what the textbook tells us. If someone's like, yeah, but this has been my experience with Lyme disease, functional medicine is much more inclined to be like, oh, maybe that's also a manifestation of Lyme disease. And to really keep asking each additional layer of why. Why do you have heartburn? Is it because of increased abdominal pressure? Why do you have increased abdominal pressure? Are you pregnant? Are you obese? Do you have SIBO? Um, and so we just keep peeling back the layers of the onion until we get to the fundamental root cause.
0: Yeah, that's that's good. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I love that that you are open to the idea of exploring why. And I know so many practitioners are, and so many doctors are, and I mean, and this is kind of a movement that's brewing. And I think that it's helpful for people who have been told, you know, well, just take the pill, you know, or just take this thing or take this. Um, I think it's, it's very exciting. I think we're living in exciting times for that. So I appreciate your perspective now. You wrote something recently, I I don't know how recent it was, but, um, I found it on your website talking about bipolar root cause and, you know, my bipolar diagnosis is a big part of my story and why I have this podcast, but we haven't ever really touched on it on the show. And so can you go into just a little bit about, um, what would bipolar root cause be? What would that look like?
1: Uh, Yes. So bipolar, I think this is probably going to be my next book, because this is a conversation <laughs> that needs to be happening. Mm-hmm. It's not happening. I mean, you're you're really one of the most important voices in this space, but you're not seeing doctors really talking a lot about exploring the why underneath bipolar. We have that shrug of like, well, it's kind of genetic and mm-hmm. that's not a satisfactory answer. So I think that like all mental health issues, there are myriad potential root causes So one cause that I see from time to time is what I really think is a thyroid issue masquerading as bipolar. Mm -hmm. And in that case, it's really that often it can be related to like, to something like gluten in the diet where gluten can generate antibodies that are meant to be attacking the gluten molecules, but they basically cross-react with thyroid glands. There's enough molecular mimicry or overlap between what our thyroid gland looks like and what gluten looks like then an antibody generated to attack gluten can then go on to actually attack our thyroid. So some people are having a gluten sensitivity that turns into antibodies that recognize the gluten that the thyroid gland is foreign and want to attack the thyroid gland. Then what you see is this alternating state of attack on the thyroid gland. This is all my pet theory, um, (laughs) attack on the, on the thyroid gland, which sort of spills out a certain amount of thyroid gland into the bloodstream and manifests as a state of relative hyperthyroidism and that is a state of activation increased energy talking Mm. faster higher metabolism it can look a lot like mania and then of course over time the thyroid gland is damaged and now you have a state of relative hypothyroidism insufficient quantities of thyroid hormone being produced and that looks like a state of lacking vitality lacking energy you feel cold you gain weight and Mm -hmm. decreased appetite just decreased activity. And that can look a lot like depression, especially bipolar depression, which is a little different than sort of a unipolar depression. Bipolar depression really has that characteristic, like you're holed up in your room, staying in bed, like not greeting the day at all. (laughs) And that's uniquely bipolar state I have found. And so I think for some folks, it's actually a thyroid condition masquerading as bipolar. I have some patients where it's iatrogenic which is a fancy term for doctors cause this. And we know that a certain subset of the population, if you put them on an SSRI antidepressant, it can precipitate a manic episode. And then that person is basically forever more bipolar. And were they going to become bipolar in their life had it not been for that SSRI? I'm not convinced that that's true that they were going to manifest eventually one way or another, I think that we can sometimes induce a state of bipolar, it's almost like you've pulled the rubber band, and now it snaps and it's kind of oscillating back between the two states.
0: That is fascinating. I know that you are sharing information that a lot of us have never heard before. I do want to pause for a second and thank our sponsor for today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Good Chop. Good Chop is America's online butcher. With Good Chop, you get a flexible monthly subscription plan for high-quality American meat and seafood. You can choose the medium or large plan and enjoy your favorite cuts of beef, chicken, pork, and seafood. It is delivered flash frozen for freshness and sealed with dry ice inside an insulated box. And only for listeners, you can go to goodchop.com/spark100 and use the code SPARK100 to get $100 off your first 3 boxes. Good Chop offers Easy access to high-quality products. They have convenient, contact-free delivery right to your doorstep, and you can order fully customizable boxes. You can choose the meat option that your family likes the most. For example, with the beef, you can order well-marbled Angus choice and prime cuts, or you can get delicious 100% grass-fed steaks, whatever you prefer. For seafood, they offer sustainable and wild caught, whether you want salmon, Pacific cod, or something else. There's truly something for everyone. Mouth-watering ribeyes, flavorful T-bones, wild caught salmon, tender chicken breasts, and so much more. Good Chop especially prides itself on sourcing beef that contains no antibiotics or added hormones ever. There are no artificial ingredients, only the good stuff. I was actually surprised at how much I loved the pork chops. I'm typically not a pork chop girl. That's not my go-to, but these pork chops were delicious. The flavor was so amazing, and I felt completely nourished with my meal. Now, my husband, on the other hand, he will not stop talking about the ribeye he loved it. He said it's the juiciest ribeye he has ever had. Go to goodchop.com slash spark100 and use code spark100 to get $100 off your first three boxes. That's goodchop.com slash spark100. Use the code spark100 to get $100 off your first three boxes. That's Good Chop, America's online butcher. Now, Dr. Vora, you were talking about the root causes of bipolar disorder. You mentioned a thyroid condition masquerading as bipolar. You mentioned SSRI usage. What else could be a contributing root cause for bipolar disorder?
1: I also have a pet theory, which is that some bipolar is extreme sensitivity to light. I think our circadian rhythm, which is cued by light, it's really, we're all a little bit different. But I find that, and I'm somewhere along this spectrum, I think I'm more sensitive to light than other people. So if you put me in a casino or an ER after sunset, (laughs) it revs me up and I could stay up all night. And I'm fairly certain that if I did that for long stretches, I could induce a state of mania of just not needing to sleep at night because my body has such a pronounced reaction to light. So I'd sometimes think that bipolars are just people that are very sensitive to light in our modern environment, which has very helter-skelter light signals and Mm -hmm. where we should be exposed to darkness after sunset. Instead, we are surrounded by artificial blue spectrum light, and it's very dysregulating to the circadian rhythm, which then gets somebody's sleep off cycle. And that I think can induce states of mania and depression. And the last one is a reaction to substances. So you see this with, you know, whether whatever you're going through in life, If you're having a cocaine bender, if you have a relationship to alcohol, if you have a relationship to benzodiazepines, I think sometimes these medicines can get brain physiology a little bit out of balance, and it can look like mania, and then that can send you down a path of oscillating between mania and depression, so those are some of the ideas that come to mind. I think there's also an interesting idea to explore around the almost like second cousins relationship between bipolar disorder and seizure disorders. So we can explore that at some point Mm -hmm. if that's interesting, but I think that, yeah, I I think that like, we see that some of the medications we use to treat seizure disorder are the same as our mood stabilizers. And they almost both had this quality of the brain kind of getting into a a state of like, you know, mania is in certain ways, like a little seizure, you don't lose Mm -hmm. consciousness, but it's like the wiring, the electricity, the firing is off in that moment. And, and I think that a lot of things that can make somebody can lower the seizure threshold and make it more likely for somebody with a seizure disorder to have a seizure have overlap with what can sort of lower what I would call the bipolar threshold. So sleep deprivation, blood sugar swings, alcohol use, benzodiazepine withdrawal um, mineral deficiencies, Mm. magnesium deficiency, all of these things that can make it more likely for someone with a seizure disorder to have a seizure, I think can also contribute to somebody with a predilection toward bipolar to drop into a manic state.
0: Wow. This is so good. You put together so many pieces and I'm like, as I'm sitting here thinking about myself and other people I know who have bipolar, I'm like, well, gosh, There could be three or four of those, you know, those four things you mentioned. There could be two, three, four. I mean, it's not just one thing. And I think that's important. I know for me, SSRIs were that was a big trigger for me. And but was I why was I put on SSRIs? Well, I was put on hormone hormonal birth control right before that, which depleted my B6. I'm genetically predisposed to not being able to absorb B6 anyway. So then we've got low serotonin. So then, you know what I mean? So it's like this, I see it. Um, and I just, it drives me crazy sometimes. I'm like, why doesn't everybody see this? That it's not just one thing that there are so many puzzle pieces at play. And I think, um, gluten, I'd love to, let's expand on gluten real fast. If I'm going to pick apart, one of the things you said, because I know this impacts, um, not just, you know, bipolar, not just there are, I I was recently doing a deep dive into PubMed. I don't, don't ask me why it was just fun. And (laughs) maybe I was manic. No, I'm just kidding. Uh Um, But yeah, I was doing a deep dive and I found there are so many articles about gluten and schizophrenia and other psychotic episodes having to do most mostly with celiac for sure, but also just the gluteomorphins, casomorphins as well, I believe with dairy so how does, are, are you see? is this a modern thing where gluten's affecting the brain this way? Has it always been this way? How does gluten play a role in our brain health?
1: Great questions. We could go in so many directions with this. Um, and I do want to circle back even to birth control being the sometimes first <laughs> inciting incident of sending someone down their mental health journey, but we could come back to that. So gluten, um, you know, for anybody who doesn't eat gluten-free and has never dabbled in it, it's such an annoying dietary restriction, right? Everyone wants to roll their eyes at it and just be like, oh, it's so precious and snowflakey and you're making all Mm. this extra trouble at the (laughs) restaurant and whatever. But what I've found in my practice is that a lot of people struggling with mental health issues do benefit from eliminating gluten. And why is a long conversation. But I think that – I think that there is something different about modern gluten. And I think there's even perhaps more importantly, something different about the context in which we're ingesting gluten in modern life.
0: Ooh, that is very interesting. Now, I've got to stop you right there and take a second and thank our sponsor for this episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Sleep Number. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because every great day starts the night before. Knowing more about your sleep helps you achieve your best quality sleep for your overall health and well-being. We have been discussing mental health, bipolar disorder, anxiety, all of these things, and I will say that I know that my mental health improves so much more when I am getting good quality sleep at night. My sleep number is 40 and my average sleep score for the month of February was 81, which I am pretty proud of. Some of the benefits of quality sleep are fewer cravings. People who are sleep deprived tend to consume more calories per day than well rested people, less burnout. People who get at least eight hours of sleep every night tend to have better reflexes, improved fine motor skills, and extended endurance. Less grump. Sleep boosts a chemical called serotonin, which we have been talking about in this episode. This is responsible for keeping you alert and regulating your emotions. Also, less crazy. People who are sleep-deprived tend to be more frazzled, forgetful, and have a harder time completing simple tasks. I know for me, my sleep quality has improved greatly with my Sleep Number bed, and I'm not alone at that. Sleepers who routinely use their Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year. That is huge. I love my Sleep Number bed, and I don't even remember what life was like without it. Discover special offers now for a limited time at your local Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com/wholeness. Sleep number. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Okay, Dr. Vora, so you were talking about modern gluten and and how it's changed. So what makes that different than what we had in the past? So modern gluten,
1: you know, high is a higher gluten component. And it is, you know, packaged with like the, the crop itself is sprayed with the pesticide Roundup, at least in the United States. Um, It's used both as a pesticide and then later as a desiccant. So it's even kind of involuted into the seed and it's really ubiquitous in our wheat crop is is a lot of Roundup where the active ingredient is glyphosate, which then creates the conditions for dysbiosis or an imbalance in gut flora and leaky gut. And so I think that's why there's such a one-two punch in modern life around gluten and developing a sensitivity because we're consuming our gluten right alongside a substance that's going to make it more likely that some of this partially digested gluten gets into our bloodstream and in provokes an immune response. So I think that's what's different about modern life is that we've created the conditions to have leaky gut right as we're eating our gluten. So we're giving ourselves a near guaranteed immune response to it. And then the gluteomorphin effect, and for anybody who's not familiar with that, gluten breaks down partially to something that has a kind of opiate-like quality called gluteomorphin and dairy has a similar one called casomorphin. And this is part of why we love these foods, right? If you think about it, any comfort food is some combination of gluten and dairy. It's like, you know, cookies and milk and a brownies a la mode and ice cream with cone, you know, it's always gluten and dairy, grilled cheese, pizza. And so if you have leaky gut, then these gluteomorphin and casomorphin components can access the bloodstream. They're lipophilic. They can cross the blood brain barrier, and then they can behave. They can act on our opiate receptors in the brain. That's part of why we love these foods. It's also part of why some of us get kind of sleepy or fuzzy after we eat them. And it's part of why we crave them afterward too. So, um, and I wonder if like, if this does relate to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, where substances can kind of stretch the brain out of balance. And anytime you're stretching a bipolar predisposed brain out of homeostasis, you're making it that much more likely that it's going to get into an oscillating pattern.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and some of us just have more sensitive brains and that's okay. You know, and I think that like you even mentioned the (laughs) snowflakey feeling of like, well, I can't have gluten. I mean, you know, I battle that all the time, like, you know, I don't want to be that person, you know, that's like, well, well, this might affect my brain in a negative way, you know, but we have to do what's right for our own individual unique bodies. And sometimes that means being a little extra, you know, <laughs> this is so, How I'm coming into 2022 is really embracing what makes me a
1: snowflake. And <laughs> I think it's a lot of like, um, sort of self-directed misogyny to even like want to dismiss those parts of us that are more sensitive, mm-hmm. more emotional, more irrational, more intuitive—you name it—it's Um, uh, it's just all these things we associate with the feminine, and therefore are negative. And I think that that's cultural messaging we've gotten that is really false. And so these things that make me an annoying, sensitive, you know, snowflakey, precious new person <laughs> are are part of who I am. And then now I just embrace them fiercely, unapologetically. And, and in many ways, try to normalize them and carve the path so that my patients and other people who work with me can feel more comfortable doing the same thing. Cause really, we just have to feel empowered to make the choices that help us feel good. And to Mm -hmm. do that without apologizing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Now let's get back to, since, um, we did touch on it you said you wanted to expand on the birth control pill and how yeah. that impacts our brain cuz i do know many people they get on it they're like oh i felt anxious i felt irritable i felt all of these things i actually surprisingly responded really well to it i liked the effects i don't know if it was i i don't know what it was but um so i did stay on it for a little bit it didn't give me immediate negative reactions until the drop in the feelings of depression so i'd love for you to break that down
1: yeah. For you, it's maybe more, I don't know if you have like an MTHFR mutation, but it was mm. more in the micronutrient deficiencies that over time, it cumulatively had an impact on mental health. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. So hormones matter. I mean, we know this, if you're not on any exogenous hormonal birth control or anything, and you're just going through your regular cycle, you know that you feel differently at different points in your cycle when you're in your follicular phase and it's presiding tone is estrogen and you feel a little bit more outgoing, a little more energetic versus the luteal phase. It's a little more internally focused. And then those days before our period, when we have a fallout of our hormones, we can feel a little bit more irritable, a little bit more tender, sensitive, sad even. Um, And so we know that hormones matter. So it's crazy to think that putting a large dose of exogenous hormones into our mouths every day wouldn't have an impact on our moods. It's like Duh. Of course it does. And we're all a little different. For some people, it's sort of even kind of stabilizing because if their hormones were out of balance for a number of possible reasons, then having that consistent dose of estrogen and progesterone every day can, can sometimes actually feel sort of good. But there's other issues with the birth control pill, um, things along the lines of it creates micronutrient deficiencies, like in some of the B vitamins and zinc. And then that can go on to impact our mental health because we need those micronutrients. They are building blocks for neurotransmitters and for the proper functioning of our brains. Um, it can impact our gut flora, which mm. in its own right impacts our mood and our inflammation and everything about the functioning of our body. And, um, and I think that what bothers me about birth control is that I can't even count the number of times I've had patients come in to see me. They've carried diagnoses of, you name it, depression, anxiety, ADD, insomnia um, for years and years. And they're all kinds of medicated. They're on an antidepressant, they're on something for anxiety, something for sleep, something for focus. And if I really go through the chronology with them, it all started with the pill. Mm -hmm. Like they were a functioning person without a mental health diagnosis and then usually for acne or irregular periods, they get put on the pill. And then six months, 12 months later, it's like, I'm actually crying every day. Okay, let's put you on an antidepressant. Okay, now I'm on the antidepressant, but I don't have a sex drive. Let's add Wellbutrin. Okay, now I'm anxious. (laughs) Let's add this, you know, clonopin as needed for anxiety. And now I'm not focusing and let's add Adderall. And now I can't sleep. So let's add Ambien. And then you see somebody with heavy-duty cocktail of antidepressants and other psych meds, a heavy-duty identity of mental health issues. And it actually all originated with that first prescription for the birth control pill. So with those patients, I've worked tirelessly over years to strip away all the different things that are getting their physiology out of balance. And when we get them back to ground zero, where they're not really doing anything to manipulate their hormones, they're actually no longer depressed, anxious, ABD, or insomnia.
0: Wow. Yeah, I, that's so powerful. I And I know the med cocktail is a big thing. And I want to make sure and be careful when we're talking about medication, right? Because I know many people who are on medication. I have people close to me who every time they've tried to wean off their symptoms get worse. And so at this point, it's safest for them to just stay on that low dose of whatever that is, right? So how how can we have a Instead of an either or approach, how can we take a both and approach to mental health, use the tools that we have with medicine, but maybe add more tools and and where's that balance?
1: I love the way you put that. Yeah, I take a both-hand approach to nearly everything, like polarized moment right now where everything mm-hmm. is like, I'm this, but I'm this. And so we are anathema to each other and nobody can agree. And that's not helping us. We need to meet in the middle and the complexity and the gray area. So psych meds are no exception. They're a perfect example of this. As a holistic psychiatrist, I very rarely prescribe medication and I sometimes do. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like very much mm-hmm. both of these things. I've had patients helped by them. I've had patients harmed by them. I've had patients helped by them, but then the, the effect fades. I've had patients helped by them, but then for whatever reason, they need to type trade off. And that's been really damaging. And so there's no easy answers. I do think we need informed consent to really understand, like, here's what we're getting you into. This is going to potentially help in certain ways. It might not. It might cause these side effects. It might be like this if you try to taper off. And I just want someone to know the full breadth of that before they take the first pill. For me, the reason I often don't prescribe is nothing to do with any kind of dogmatic attitude against meds. Like to me, there's no shame. There's no stigma. There's no moral failing or nothing's inferior about taking meds. If that's what helps you great. Hallelujah. I celebrate any mental health victory. If someone can feel good by any means, I'm in favor of that. The reason I avoid it is two part. One is I never want to set somebody up for harm. And I do think that it can be so difficult to get off of meds. And we can talk about what are some of the challenges there. But I also think that it's not always addressing the true root cause of the problem. So sometimes it's necessary as a bridge. If like, someone is just too down and out that there will be no addressing of the root cause. Like if you're not getting out of bed, it's pretty hard to be like, now I'm eating an autoimmune paleo diet and right. exercising every day. <laughs> so if, if you're in a position where you can make little incremental shifts to diet and lifestyle, that's sometimes a more elegant solution to a mental health issue. Um, that's what's really addressing the fundamental root cause that's causing this mental health issue. But if there's just no way to get there, then sometimes a medication is a really nice bridge to get you to the place where you can start making those changes. The tapering process for some people is no big deal. For a lot of people, it's really hard. And I think that this is a silent epidemic. I think that there's a lot of people suffering in silence. I think there's shame around it. I think people really struggle to find practitioners who are knowledgeable and supportive of tapering off of medications. So That's a big, big problem. And I do think that there's a lot of folks who attempt to taper, feel miserable and call that relapse rather than withdrawal incorrectly. Mm. So I think it's important for us to recognize getting off of psych meds, which are powerful psychoactive substances causes withdrawal and we should call it what it is. And that doesn't mean you can never get off, but we need to kind of start from that place of acknowledging that this is withdrawal and we need to mitigate the withdrawal experience to get somebody through.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you touched on that because let's that shame topic. There's such a movement to, you know, not shame people for taking medication, which is great. Right. But I'm also seeing the flip side of that, which is we are shaming people for looking for other options. We're shaming people for going off of their medication. I have felt that I've, I've been accused of being anti-med. I've been accused, you know, of, of shaming other people who still want to be on their meds, which that's why I asked the question I did, because I want to make it clear that we have so many tools available to us, but what we aren't talking about is the withdrawals. Cause I've been through those. I was on an SSRI for 18 years. That was my last remaining medication. And it took me three weeks of vertigo brain zaps. It was miserable. I did. And this is, I'm not recommending this to anybody. Um, this is consult with your doctor, whatever but I did supplement with some tryptophan 5-HTP while that was happening to kind of stabilize again, do not, not making a recommendation without consulting your doctor. But, um, yeah, I just, I think we have to be aware of that because at this point there's a whole lot of shame for doing anything that's quote natural or that looks natural. Right. And that goes to the polarization.
1: Yeah. It's such a sensitive topic and, I mean, every single time I try to spread awareness around like there are other approaches to managing mental health, or um, I want people to know, like I'm always interested in letting the people who are out there know if they haven't been helped by meds, that there's still hope. And I want to let people know who are struggling with withdrawal, getting off of meds, that there are ways to do this process more safely, more sustainably. But anytime I try to offer those messages of hope and support and validation, it's always met with pushback of like, so you're trying to shame me for taking meds. No, no, not at all. But you don't need me to give that message. 99.9% of psychiatrists are all fully on board with like meds are the answer. And Mm -hmm. that's the presiding messaging right now. We're actually not even really living in the moment of stigmatizing mental health. We're living in a slightly different moment right now where we're in that moment where mental health is increasingly seen as a genetic disease. It's the disease model where it's like, you wouldn't feel shame for having diabetes and taking meds for that. So why would you Mm -hmm. feel shame for depression and taking meds for that? I love the spirit of that. I don't think we should feel shame for anything, let alone mental health issues. But I also want people to know that it's not necessarily a genetic destiny. There's like genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And that's not to shame anybody for being in a state where they've pulled the trigger and like they have manifested with what they were predisposed to. Like if someone's manifesting with depression, there's no shame around that. And I want people to know that there are things we can do to feel better
0: yeah yeah that's so good i love your message so with that i definitely before we run out of time i want to spend a good amount of time talking about your book the anatomy of anxiety because um i obviously i want to promote it and promote what you're doing so more people can read your work but tell me what's wh- who's it for what's how's it laid out what's the structure you know give us all the information about it
1: yeah thanks aaron so it's it's a book about anxiety in every sense so it's really anyone who's struggling with anxiety to any any version of it. If you have a kind of mild subclinical relationship to worry and fear and tension and burnout around the pandemic, it's helpful for that. And if you are really struggling with pretty severe anxiety or OCD or panic disorder or social anxiety or PTSD, it's appropriate for that as well. And it's a really different approach. It's kind of, I break it up into two main chunks and the first half is a very functional medicine approach to anxiety. It's basically saying a lot of this, like mental health is physical health and the way to address this effectively so that you can just walk away physically less anxious is to understand all the ways our physical body gets out of balance. And so it's actionable strategies, it's diet and nutrition and lifestyle strategies, how to improve your sleep realistically in this modern world, um, how to improve your relationship to technology, how to nourish your body, how to be less inflamed, how to address autoimmunity, all of that. And that's the first half. And then the second half is really an exploration of these aspects of anxiety that are not what we should be pathologizing. Hmm. It's not something that's wrong with you. It's in many ways, a superpower. It's in many ways, a sensitivity that's really here to help us all. Um, And it's something for us to slow down and listen to and honor and heed. And so it's an exploration of like how to work with your anxiety, to not see it as the problem or the nuisance or something to medicate away or gluten-free away. <laughs> <Like> it's basically <laughs> right. something to um, say, well, this is a communication from deep within that's here to help guide me and really guide us
0: all. Yeah. It, it's good because I think, you know, those anxiety symptoms are uncomfortable. They're unpleasant and we don't like unpleasant. If we have a headache, we take you know, Advil, right? Like, what if we have symptoms? What do we do? We want to wipe them out. We don't actually want to ask, hmm, how is my body protecting me through this symptom mm-hmm. of anxiety? Like nobody's asking that, you know. Um, so I really I appreciate that approach. Can you um, expand on that a little bit and what it means for to to have a different look at anxiety other than this is a problem and it's annoying and I need to fix it?
1: Yeah, I mean, take sensitivity for example. There's this well-worn metaphor around the canary in the coal mine. The idea that like people used to be, you know, coal miners, they'd go in and they'd bring a canary because the canary was more sensitive than humans. And occasionally mines have this really poisonous gas. And if the canary stops singing, that's your sign to get out of there fast because the canary went down and you're about to. And I think anxious folks are in many ways are canaries in the coal mine of modern life where there's so much potential quote unquote poisonous gas and it is, um, really, I think it's the sensitive folks who pick up on it a few months, years, decades earlier than everybody else. And rather than shaming them, or insulting them and being like, you're so sensitive, (laughs) stop being so annoying. Um, I think we culturally really need to shift to an attitude of, tell us what you're feeling, help us understand this, because you're really here to help us all. There's really interesting research that I first read about in Sarah Wilson's book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, um, but it's, it's the work of the zoologist, Diane Fossey. And she <laughs> was looking at tribes of primates and chimps. And if the the anxious, the anxious chimps were kind of out on the outskirts, they wouldn't sleep as well. They'd be like this outlook party in the tribe of chimps. And then when she removed those anxious chimps from the community, the rest of them died. And they started to realize that they were there as a safety mechanism for the population. That in certain ways, it makes sense that we're all along a spectrum of everywhere from being like life naturals, who are like, what What gluten doesn't matter, it doesn't affect me and everything (laughs) comes easily to me and I'm never anxious, to people who are super anxious. And they really are, are very sensitive folks. And so that they're not just here to be annoying, they're really here as our prophets and our canaries and they feel things that actually can keep us all safer. So I think that for anxious people to really start to embrace that, to see it as a superpower, it's a, it's a gift and a skill that you bring, your sensitivity, and to really start to slow down and listen to what it has to say. And I talk a lot in the book about finding our path. And it's not like some huge weighty pressure that we should be putting on ourselves. It's really just to understand that we all have these unique perspectives and contribution to make. And it can be really small. It can be really grand. It doesn't matter. It's just whatever is right for us. And our anxiety can sometimes be the communication that helps us know where, what lights us up, what matters most to us. And once we start to take steps accordingly and take some action around what our anxiety is telling us to pay attention to, it doesn't feel like such a nuisance or a symptom anymore. It starts to feel purposeful
0: love that that's that's such a beautiful way of looking at it and it gives hope to a lot of people who who have felt that their anxiety weighs them down you know um and causes them to not be able to function the way they want to um you know you mentioned before we started recording a concept or to talking about we were talking about false anxiety what what's the difference what what is false anxiety
1: yeah that term I know can feel so invalidating, It's like oh, anxiety. Like my anxiety is quite real. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's not to invalidate the very real suffering of anxiety. It's to speak to the underpinnings of it and to imply like there's a very straightforward path out of false anxiety. So the way I see it is that our false anxiety is, it's, it's basically when our body is in a physical state of imbalance that's tripped us into a stress response and that stress response feels synonymous with anxiety, panic feeling easily overwhelmed, waking up throughout the middle of the night. And the important difference here is that even though our brain is all too happy to swoop in with a narrative about why we're feeling anxious, our brain is like, oh, yeah, I'm anxious because um, that email from my boss isn't sitting right and the world is barreling towards certain destruction. So that's why I'm feeling anxious. But it's actually a retrofitted justification for what was initially a physical state. And that physical state, it's caused by these mundane aspects of modern life a blood sugar crash, being sleep deprived, being inflamed, eating something we don't tolerate, being micronutrient deficient, um, having a thyroid issue. And so basically these physical states get us out of balance and that begins to feel like heavy duty mental health issues. And the point here is that heavy duty mental health issues sometimes require seven years of psychotherapy. False anxiety really just requires stabilizing our blood sugar and getting a good night of sleep. And so it speaks to the fact that there's a straightforward path out that starts at the level of the physical body.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned blood sugar, because that's something I wanted to ask you about, because I do know that a lot of panic attacks can be blood sugar related. And that's scary because we have, we have a lot of people right now who are suffering from blood sugar imbalances due to, you know, all sorts of reasons. So um, I'd love for you to explain that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so blood sugar, it's not one zero. Like we think it's you're either diabetic or you're not. Um, and that, that's not the case. Um, we're all along this spectrum of dysglycemia where our bodies are better or worse at modulating and managing our blood sugar. And for many of us, because the modern American diet is built on a foundation of refined carbohydrates and coffee drinks that are secretly just milkshakes and rose all day, many of us are on a blood sugar roller coaster. And our blood sugar spikes, the insulin chases it, and then the blood sugar crashes. And the response that the body has to that blood sugar crash is a stress response. That's just the design of the body. I didn't make the rules, but basically that's how it works is the stress response cues the liver to break down where it stores starch. And it gives us some urgency to start foraging for food. So that's how we respond to a blood sugar crash. And it can really look and feel identical to a panic attack or just to generalized anxiety. And the path out is to keep our blood sugar stable. And there are ways to do that. Like the definitive solution is a blood sugar stabilizing diet, more protein, more healthy fats, getting your carbohydrates from starchy tubers instead of refined carbohydrates, less sugar, less booze. Um, and then there's like a hack, which is to do something like a spoonful of almond butter a few times a day, which can give us like a safety net of stable blood sugar, which will then blunt any blood sugar crash that's superimposed on it. And some people have luck doing things like intermittent fasting to start to, and even ketogenic diet to kind of retrain their metabolism to be a little bit more blood sugar stable, less of like a hot, cold sugar burning state. Um, I find that there's a lot of variation in terms of who thrives with that. I think that men do. I think women, postmenopausal women do well with that. I think women of reproductive age have the most complex physiology and it's not always a success when they start to manipulate their eating patterns like with intermittent fasting. I generally think they do well with like circadian fasting where they're eating during the daylight hours and not at night. But once they start doing longer windows of intermittent fasting, I think for some women, their bodies respond by saying, hey, this doesn't feel like caloric abundance, and so it's not a good time to reproduce, and so then their hypothalamus and their pituitary starts to change how they're producing hormones so that they don't ovulate, and that actually doesn't feel good, and that can only go on to exacerbate things like anxiety.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I I always say that your body doesn't know the difference between a diet or a famine. And I think that's where intermittent fasting can be a little bit tricky. Um, it can put us a little bit into famine mode and we have to be careful with it. Um, but you know, you mentioned circadian fasting, which brings you back to the whole circadian rhythm concept, because I truly, you know, I, I know for myself that, Just staying, being aware of my circadian rhythm, honoring my circadian rhythm, we're surrounded by artificial lights. If we wanted to, we could have light on 24 seven. That's not natural. That's stressful. That's a stressor for our body. Right. And same thing with food. Our bodies are designed to kind of function in this circadian clock. So that's probably true for all of our mental health issues, not just anxiety, but for sure bipolar and depression as well. Right. Yeah. So
1: if we want to function well, if we want our brains to function optimally. We need really good sleep on a consistent cycle. Like that's just full stop. Um, it's especially true for bipolar, but it's very true for anxiety. It's true for depression. It's true for really all mental health issues. And in order to achieve that, there's a lot we can do to set ourselves up to sleep well, but the number one most impactful change we can make is to be smart about our light cues. And basically to try to approximate the evolutionary conditions in modern life. Um, And that really means bright light first thing in the morning, like being present for the sunrise, and then having an experience of darkness after sunset, which it's crazy that we have to say that, but on the proverbial savanna of evolution, after sunset, you could see the moon and you could see a fire and that's about it. And that doesn't disrupt our circadian rhythm but you better believe that our phone screens and our laptops and our TVs and our overhead lighting and even the ambient light pollution outside of our windows does disrupt our circadian rhythm. So, you know, you can move off grid and throw your phone away is a nice solution, live by candlelight in the evenings. But short of that, getting a pair of blue blocking glasses is a really nice intervention. And just have something that you can put on at sunset and wear until bedtime. At the very least, it blocks out the blue spectrum light that is going to go straight to the super nucleus in your brain and tell it good morning, the sun is rising, even if it's 11 PM. So you want to just block out the blue spectrum light and protect your circadian rhythm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's good. You know, we, we have seen such an increase in all sorts of mental health issues, especially, you know, the last two years, but I do believe we were building that way due to processed food, the lights, the screens, the everything. So how can we support a healthy brain in, in, during this modern time, aside from, I think blue light blockers and what you just suggested in sleep, that's so huge, but what else can we do? What do you love?
1: uh, I love nutrient dense food. Um, I think we have a lot of misinformation and miseducation around how to nourish ourselves. And we've had all this kind of damaging ideas around eating low fat or avoiding cholesterol or, um, you know, I think that we need to think back to how traditional diets, like traditional cultures thought about nutrition and they really prized foods that had a lot of nutrient density, things like chicken liver, pate, egg yolks, ghee, cream, like like raw cream from healthy cows. Um, things like that that actually really pack a lot of punch in terms of nourishment. Honey, raw honey, um, and fruit. And so I think that we we want to really look at food as like how can you navigate the modern food landscape with a compass of generally try to eat real food, generally try to avoid fake food, generally try to listen to what your body is saying it needs in that moment, but discern whether it's saying it needs something nourishing or a drug. Because if your body's like ah okay, what I need right now is pizza. That's probably a drug reaction. (laughs) That's a good point. If if it's saying I need a juicy dripping steak, that's probably a craving for something that it needs in that moment. It needs zinc, it needs iron, whatever the case may be. And so to really start to discern what is my body asking for and how can I meet that need, but make sure that it's actually a true yearning for something nutritional. And I think that we do need to move our bodies, but I like to encourage people to lower their standards because we really get, so defeated by the all or nothing idea around exercise and doing five minutes, like moving around your living room, dancing to Whitney Houston, that's (laughs) infinitely better than doing nothing. So it's just whatever is actually sustainable and pleasurable. If you can take a walk outside, that's great. I also think sunshine is its own whole huge controversial conversation, but I think that we've swung the pendulum just a little too far in a direction of fearing the sun and talking about the harmful rays of the sun. I don't deny that cancer, like skin cancer, is absolutely a real risk. We're all at slightly different levels of risk with that based on our family history of skin cancer and how fair we are, and even our own personal history of sunburns and childhood. But I do think that most of us would benefit from just reconsidering what's the right amount of sunshine for us, and can we build back in safe amounts of like low-grade, consistent exposure to the sun? And I think that has a huge impact on our overall. Certainly our mental health, but really our overall health and well being. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's good. And I vitamin, our vitamin D levels are not have not improved much with the overuse of sunscreens, you know? I mean, that's that's a concern. So I'm
1: working from home and addicted to video games, nobody's getting sunshine
0: anymore. Right, right. I think that's so huge. I I love everything that you shared. You know, you mentioned something about um considering if you're craving, is it is it a drug or is it nourishing food. And I think that that's important because there is a movement. And again, like everything I say, I want to be careful how I say this, but there is a movement towards intuitive eating. Right. And I understand the need for that. I think eating disorders, it's a whole other topic on how to support that. But I will say, I think it's very difficult to eat intuitively when you are nutrient deprived. And when we are consistently consuming foods that are designed to, uh, create addictive, like behaviors, you know, they've been processed that way on purpose. And so you're speaking my language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I struggle with that. So how can we, you know, learn to listen to our bodies, but also be aware that there are a lot of things that are hijacking our neurochemistry by design, I think you hit the nail on the head. I actually don't think it's all that possible to
1: um, hand the reins over to intuitive eating when our landscape is rife with Mm. foods that are engineered to be addictive. I don't think we can have an intuitive relationship to drug-like foods. And so it's like just intuitive drug use, you know, just seeing right. how much heroin is the right <laughs> amount that day, right? It's, it doesn't work. And so I think we do need to be real with ourselves about the fact that the processed foods have to varying degrees been engineered to hijack our brain chemistry and addict us. Like the Pringles slogan, you can't eat just one. Yeah. And it's like the joke's on us. You can't. <laughs> you literally right. can. So I think that, um, I think intuitive eating is sort of something to navigate in the space of real food. Mm -hmm. And that I know people feel like that shames fake food and processed food and has a kind of like privilege component to it. And I'll acknowledge all of that. I think it's so tricky. We don't have easy answers, but I will say this. I think that we've gotten ourselves into this mess because we have our processed food industry. Like, I don't think that we would have a generation of women struggling with what's the right way to eat and right amount to eat. And have I moved my set point? I think we're all in such a a sort of mixed up twisted relationship to food because we got exposed to drug-like foods at an early age and it really sent us down a confusing path and so we do the shaming of the individual we say like you know well you feel out of control with food but like that's an orthorexic tendency and let's you know work on you but I actually I don't hate the player I hate the game and I think that there's been a processed food industry that's really deranged our relationship to food and satiety So to me, the exit ramp was to start to just eat real food and avoid the fake food. And that's how I've gotten to a place of real freedom with how I feed myself.
0: I agree. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. And um, you said that so well. So as we're wrapping up, I have to ask you, um, this is my favorite question to ask, but if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be?
1: I mean, I think on the practical level, if you can only do one thing, prioritize your sleep but on the more psycho-spiritual level, if you can only prioritize one thing in your life, community, mm. I think it's really just our relationships, it's people, that's what makes meaning and fulfillment in our lives. And that's the thing to lean into and to organize the rest of our life around that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now share with us where people can find more, learn more about you, find your book, all of that.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm on Instagram at MD. And my website is ellenvora.com And then I hope that the messages here resonate and that my book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, can be a really helpful tool for people to find a path towards feeling less anxious.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be so powerful. You know, I am a, <laughs> an addict for books that are about mental health and any aspect of mental health. I read them all. And I think your approach is spot on. And so I, I'm really excited to promote what you do and your book.
1: Erin, thank you so, so much.
0: Thank you for being on. This is a great conversation. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at Wholeness. Have a fabulous week.